Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 95. Today I want us to study Psalm 95, a psalm that is focusing on worshiping God. This psalm comes in a series of psalms that, are, that focus specifically on the kingship of God. And so this is a psalm that, that calls us to worship God by pointing us to who God is. And I thought, what a, what a great topic to, to study. Uh, appropriate at any time. The worship of God. We were created and redeemed to worship and know God. And so I pray that this morning, this psalm today will help us do that. To know God better and to worship him even more fervently. So let's... As you find Psalm 95, will you stand, please? Let's uh, read through it. I'll read, and you can follow along in your copy as we consider Psalm 95 today. Let's hear the word of the Lord together now. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. The title of the sermon this morning is, Let Us Worship God. Psalm 95 celebrates the privilege that we have as the people of God to come together and worship Him. And I first just want to kind of show you a little bit of the, the structure, I guess you could say, in the psalm, and then we'll go through it more carefully. In verses 1 through 7, you probably notice it kind of, the psalm kind of has two distinct parts, by the way, right? Verses 1 through 7 is, is this focus on calling the, the people of God to worship God, and then the end of seven through the end is, is like a warning, right? We'll talk about that. But in that first part there, verses one through seven, we have a repeated pattern of the psalmist calling on the congregation to worship God, right? Just calling them, saying, come, worship God. And then he immediately follows that up with a specific reason that God is worthy of our worship. So again, just, just kind of the, the high altitude view here. Verses 1 and 2, you have this call to worship, right? And then in verse 3, he gives the reason. For, 
the Lord is a great God, right? And he goes into it, and he he's starts talking about truths about who God is. And then we see that same pattern repeat itself, because verse 6 then, we have another call to worship. Oh, come, let us worship, bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Then verse 7, he follows it up with another reason. For, right, and he goes into who God is. So, that's why your notes are structured the way they are. I have space for you to write out these two reasons, right? The first reason in verses 3 through 5, the second reason there in verse 7. These two summary statements of God's character. So I'll state those as we go through it. But again, as we think about worshiping God, right? Our worship needs to be driven by understanding and believing and celebrating who God is. Right? So if we have small views of God, our worship is going to be pretty poor. And so my prayer, again, is that as we study this, God will just enlarge our view of God to get it closer to a biblical right view of who he is so that our hearts will be stirred to worship him and follow him faithfully. So let's begin then in verse 1. O come... Let us sing to the Lord, right? This is a call to worship. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So the psalmist is calling on the people of God to come together to worship God. And before we get into these truths about who God is, I just from these first two verses, I just want to point out some truths, some observations about worship in general. Worship involves singing, right? I mean, look at those verses. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Again, verse 2, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So worship is more than singing, but it certainly involves singing. Singing songs of praise, singing songs of thanksgiving to God, singing adoration for who God is, singing and rejoicing in what God has done for us. Worship involves singing. Now, I also want to point out, we, we we also worship God by reading His Word, by responding to his word being preached, by, by giving tithes and offerings, uh, through prayer, right? These are all parts of the worship service. Sometimes we only equate worship with singing, and that's, that's a mistake, that's inadequate. But certainly worship is, does involve singing, all these ways, whether it's the, the, through prayer, through, through the responding to God's word, through giving, through singing, these are all ways that we can declare and rejoice and respond to who God is and what he has done for us. Another observation, this worship involves singing, it's directed to God, <laughs> right? Again, I mean, I know these are kind of elementary, but I think they're helpful to be uh, helpful reminders to us. Our worship is directed to God. Notice that. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Obviously, another way of referring to God. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him. 
Our singing, our thanksgiving, our responding to his word is directed to God. Again, think about that, loved ones. Our singing is directed to God. God hears our singing. God sees our worship. God receives our praise. Isn't that cool? Every week, as you come... As you come to to give, as you come to sing, as you come to pray, as you come to respond to God's word, you're offering up worship to God. It's like you're bringing a sacrifice, like you're bringing a gift, a gift of adoration, a gift of thanksgiving, a gift of praise to God. What a privilege that is. That's what we were made to do. That's what we long to do. As blood-bought children of God. That leads into my next observation. This is joyful and thankful worship. This is joyful and thankful worship. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Now you tell me, does that sound like they're putting in any energy into this? Does that sound like they're just going through the motions? No. No, we are to put forth energy in our worship. We should have our minds and our hearts engaged. And I'm not calling for us to have emotional worship just for emotion's sake, right? Some people, some churches try to do that. Let's see how much we can stir, stir the emotions up just so everybody, you know, gets kind of a buzz. I'm not talking about that just for emotion's sake. No, we're talking about sincere, heartfelt, heart-engaged worship, which should include our emotions, <laughs> We need to work hard to guard against distraction. We should pray as we're coming to church or sometime in the morning, certainly as we sit down. Lord, prepare our hearts. Prepare my heart. Help me set aside the, my to-do list. Help me set aside my activities. And we've got this event to go to and this, you know, this cookout and this birthday party. And those are all things we can thank God for. But I'm here to worship you. Guard against distraction. Try to get enough rest the night before so we can give God our best. We want to set our minds on the truths that are communicated in the songs in his word. Right? Worship involves our minds. We were just talking about that in Sunday school about sanctification involves preparing our minds for action. So... Whether, again, whether the word of God's being read, whether it's a song, a good quality song that, that points us to the truths of, of who God is and of the gospel, we need to have our mind engaged. Again, the mind is a kind of a funny thing, isn't it? You know, we've all been there, right? You know, you read, whether it's the Bible or any other book, whatever, but you, you read something, you know, and you're about a page into it, and you're like, I don't have any idea what I just read, <laughs> right? Because my mind was totally thinking about something else. Or maybe you're singing a song, right, in church. And, and you know it because you, you've sung it enough. And you're singing it. But you're thinking about something else. And that's a, 
you know, th- those are challenges that we need God's grace to, to fight against. But that's not worship, right? We need to have our minds engaged. Another observation. This is corporate worship. Did you notice that? Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise again. It says, he's calling us to do this together. We can and should worship God on our own throughout the week, no doubt. But the culmination of that, the culmination of our walk with God is coming together and worshiping him together as the body of Christ, as a family of believers. Together we've been called out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light. Together we've been delivered from Satan's domain and placed in the body of Christ. Together we are part of his kingdom. Together we are living stones built together, Peter says, into a spiritual house, into a temple to offer up praise to God. Think about that. Think about what the temple was used for in the Old Testament, right? The temple was was where... God's presence dwelt in a special way and it was where they came into God's presence to offer up praise and to, you know, make atonement for sin. That's, that's what we get to do now when we come together. When we come together, the New Testament says the presence of God dwells in us individually by the Holy Spirit, all of us who've been saved but then also corporately as the Holy Spirit is among us together, among the people of God in a special way. So that struck me when it says, let us come into his presence, verse 2, with thanksgiving. As we worship God as as a body of Christ, as we together rejoice in our salvation while loving and serving one another, we're displaying the glory of God. That's what the temple was for, right? To display the glory of God. In fact, the, the Bible says, the New Testament says that in some small way, certainly, but in some small way, we are making the presence of God known when we come together. 1 Corinthians 14.25 says that after attending a service, after attending a worship service of a local church, unbelievers who are present should be able to say, God is really among you. What an opportunity we have for us to worship God, for us to together get a little foretaste of what it's going to be like to be in the new heavens and the new earth when we're in his presence fully. And what an opportunity as unbelievers come in, as unbelievers from our own family are here to experience a taste of the presence of God. Oh, that God might use that then to awaken them to give them the new birth and draw them to a saving knowledge of himself. So those were just some general observations about worship from, that I saw from the first couple of verses. But like I said earlier, the psalmist calls us, as he's doing in the first two verses, he calls us to worship God because of who God is. So let's look at verse 3 now. For, he's going to give this first reason... The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. 
In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. If you're taking notes, you could write this. He is, God is, the almighty creator and ruler of all. He is the almighty creator and ruler of all. And then you could summarize that by saying, a great God. That's what he says, right? Verse 3, for the Lord is a great God. Amen, he is a great God. What do you mean by that? He is the almighty creator and almighty ruler of all. Verse 3 declares that God is the ruler over all. Verses 4 and 5 proclaim that God is the almighty creator of all. I'm going to start with verses 4 and 5. Start with creation. In poetic terms here, in in these two verses, the psalmist describes the Lord's power demonstrated throughout creation. Verse 4, in his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountain are his also. So you see how he's kind of going from from A to Z, right? From top to bottom, bottom to top. From the depths of the earth, that would be like the deep seas or the valleys or the caverns. And so the other end of that spectrum would be the heights of the mountains. So he's saying from low to high, from A to Z, all of creation, even huge things like mountains and seas, are in God's hand. That's how powerful he is as the creator and sustainer of all. It reminds me of Isaiah 40, verse 12, a verse that we looked at in Sunday school today. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens as with a span? Or enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. See what a powerful, poetic way of describing how big, how awesome God is as creator. That the biggest things that we can see in creation, he holds in his hands. Mountains and seas. Verse 5, the sea is his, for he made it. Melissa and I were just at the northern coast of California we go on walking on trails and and depending on how foggy it is you can uh, just you look out and as far as you can see is water (laughs) I mean it's just amazing isn't it the biggest parts of creation that we can imagine I would say are the seas and the mountains and they're both in the hollow of his hand again the Verse 5 does kind of the same thing where it's all-encompassing. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Another poetic way of describing the totality of the earth, right? Sea plus dry land, that equals the whole earth. It's all his. It all belongs to God. Why? Because he made it. That's what it says, for he made it. It's his. He, He created it by the By his power, he spoke it into existence, and he sustains it by his powerful word. The vast oceans, the massive mountains, the plains, the deserts, the forests, the moon, the stars, the heavens, it all belongs to God because he made it all. They all exist by his mighty power. He holds them together by his powerful So creation testifies to the omnipotence of God. And again, all of this is just 
enlarging, reminding us of who God is so that we praise him, right? Give him the praise that he deserves. So creation testifies to the omnipotence of God and because God is creator, he is sovereign over all. Again, we saw that in our attribute class a couple of weeks ago, how scripture ties in God's um, well, his sovereignty means his right to rule, right? His power and his right to rule, and how that is linked to creation. He, because he's all-powerful, he created all things, and because he created all things, they belong to him, and he has the right to rule them. And I see that same connection here, then. That's why I went to 4 and 5 first. He, he's the almighty creator, and then now verse 3 talks about he's the almighty, the sovereign ruler, and so, yes, let us praise God for his power in creation. Let us pray, as we look at creation, may it stir our hearts to praise him for his power, for his beauty, for his wisdom that's displayed in all that we see. And let us praise God for giving us life. Praise him for his power and his grace that sustains our lives, that keeps our bodies functioning and holding this world together. And so as we sing... May that constantly be our, the, the drumbeat of our heart. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. And then speaking of King, then we move into verse 3. His absolute sovereignty over all. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. What a statement, right? Take God's little g. The Lord is the Lord. Yahweh is king over them all. He's a great king above all gods. He is ruler over all. He is superior to all the so-called gods of this world. It made me think of the book of Exodus. And when the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt, the Lord delivered them from bondage through mighty plagues. And these plagues were not just arbitrary displays of power. Rather, each plague was directed specifically toward one of the Egyptian gods. To show show the Egyptians, to show the, the Israelites certainly, who is sovereign. Is it the gods of Egypt? No. It's the God of Israel. The one true living God. This fallen world has its gods, little g. But take heart and be encouraged and rejoice that the Lord is superior to them all because he alone is the true living God. We have an enemy of our souls, loved ones, right? And again, I'm not calling Satan a god. He's an angel, fallen angel. I'm just talking about now there are powers, there are authorities evil powers and evil authorities, right? We have an enemy of our souls. Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air. Satan and his minions, Satan and his demons wield this fallen world to blind unbelievers and to harm Christians. But praise God that the Lord is sovereign over all the spiritual forces and authorities. We don't have time, but you could look at Ephesians 1. And it says that so clearly at the end of the chapter. That through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ has defeated Satan and his demons. 
Their final doom is sure. And until that day, we know that God is sovereign over every evil power. Is that reason to praise God or not? That God is sovereign, Christ is sovereign over every evil power that we see and experience in this world. Praise God. The Lord is king over the gods of this age. The Lord is king over materialism. The Lord is king over sexual confusion and perversion. The Lord is king over all enslaving sins. The Lord is king over wicked rulers who oppose his ways. The Lord is king over evil people who would persecute Christians. Truly, the Lord is the rock of our salvation, as it says in verse 2. In Christ, we are set free from Satan's realm. In Christ, we are delivered from the penalty of sin. We're delivered from the ruling power of sin. And one day, we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. All reasons to be praising God and rejoicing in who he is. So let us praise God for being the almighty ruler over all. God is sovereign over every governing authority, over every trial we go through, and over every evil we face. There is no one, as we sing, there is no one above him, beside him, or anywhere close to being in the same league as him. Praise God. I need to quickly move on to the next section here. Verse 6 is another call to worship. Shorter one this time, right? But another call to worship nonetheless. Verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Worship literally has this idea of bowing down, of lying prostrate, of paying homage before Almighty God. As we focus on the glory and awesomeness of who God is, we are humbled because we, we catch a glimpse through his word, by his spirit, we catch a glimpse of who he truly is and how completely other he is from us. We realize that God deserves all praise and honor and glory from us and from all of creation. Oh, that we would, we would be zealous for his praise Zealous for his glory. We want to see God receive the glory he deserves. We want to pray, hallowed be your name. God, treat your name as holy. May you receive the praise that you deserve. The psalmist once again declares the Lord is our maker for which he deserves our praise. But then in verse 7, the psalmist gives another reason that God is worthy of our praise. You see it there, verse 7? For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. You could write this down if you're taking notes. He is our faithful and loving Savior. He is our faithful and loving Savior, or to summarize it the way the psalmist does, he is our God. Praise him because he's a great God and praise him because that great God is our God. Amazing grace. This, of course, as you hear this, and I'm sure as the original uh, Jews would sing this, they had to be thinking about the Abrahamic covenant, right? I will be 
your God and, and they will be my people. And of course we see that, that really fleshed out and lived out in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33, the Lord says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And so when, as I thought about this, what does it mean for God to be our God? What does it mean for God to be our shepherd? It speaks to his grace. It speaks to this covenant relationship that we have with him through Christ. This shows that, this, this highlights or reminds us that our sins are forgiven. And that we know God personally. That we have become his people through his sovereign grace, through adoption, through union with Christ. We have become his people and he has become our God. This is not true of everybody. Everybody can say and should say God is my creator. But only those who are saved can say God is my God. God is our God. Or as the New Testament says, our Father. Right? Our Father. Think about, loved ones, what it means for the creator of the universe. The one I was trying to just you know, point out earlier. Almighty God, sovereign over all, think of what it means for him to be your God. All of his infinite wisdom, all of his unlimited power is for you, is working for your good and for his glory. As Paul says in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? All of God's greatness, all of his beauty is is ours to enjoy. He has called us and, and made the way for us to be with him, to enjoy him. You belong to God now. You're one of his children. You're one of his people. You have an identity. You have a purpose in life. Your life is to know God, it's to glorify God by knowing Him and rejoicing in Him. It's to to be used by Him to to further His kingdom in all that you do. Every day as you go to work or every day as you're at home uh, caring for the family, you can bring glory to God because He's your God. He's the one who keeps your heart beating, He's the one who has indwelt you by His Spirit. You can relate with him. You should relate with him. Again, I'm struck in this psalm how the, the, the psalmist uses the covenant name of God, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh, covenant name. Describing our covenant relationship to God as sheep who are part of his flock. Let's move into that picture now. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of of his hand. The Lord is our shepherd. Think about that. The Lord, Almighty God, is our shepherd. Points to our salvation again, doesn't it? Points to that relationship that we have with him. What does it mean for him to be our shepherd, for us to be his sheep? Well, you know the picture, right? How helpless sheep are. They're defenseless, they're dumb, they're... they're prone to wander, all these things, right? And so what does a shepherd do? A shepherd 
gives them life. A shepherd is faithful and is with them and is lovingly protecting them and providing for them and guiding them every day. And we have that in the Lord. The Lord is the shepherd of his people. And we know that has taken place through faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, this makes us think of some passages, doesn't it? Psalm 23, uh, John 10, where Jesus says in verse 7 that he is the door of the sheep, that we come into the Lord's sheepfold through Christ, that Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life for his sheep, that by trusting in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, all my sins are forgiven, I pass from death to life, and I become one of God's children, I become one of God's flock. We come to Christ in faith because Jesus calls us. Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, I'm just, I'm just reminding you of who you are as a child of God, who you are as, as a sheep in his flock and how that came to be. It was because God's sovereign grace sought you and called you. Because sovereign, God's sovereign grace opened your eyes and unplugged your ears so that you heard God's call to repent and believe. And it's because Christ has made peace between you and God. Your sin had, had you separated. Your sin had you at enmity with God. You were an enemy of His. But Christ has made peace. All of our sins have been paid for and we've been reconciled to God forever. All of this should come to our minds as we're reading verse 7. He is our God and we are the the sheep of his pasture. That means we're forgiven. That means we're reconciled to God. He's our heavenly father and our loving shepherd. We belong to him. He has bought us. He's called us. He's saved us. He's adopted us. He's committed himself to us. That's why I said he's a faithful and loving shepherd. That covenant name, that speaks of his his faithfulness. He's faithful to his covenants. He has steadfast love. Faithful love. Never-ending love for his people. The shepherd, again, provides everything the sheep needs. Food, water, protection, healing. God's care for his people is generous and all-encompassing. God provides for our physical and spiritual needs. We were rejoicing in that earlier, weren't we? He's provided for our greatest need by saving us through Christ. And he continues to give us the daily grace we need to follow him. He delivers us from many physical trials. And so I pray that as you think on that, and we could spend a lot more time on that, but but we're, we're running out of time this morning. But as you think about him being your faithful and loving Savior, may that stir your heart to praise him. Praise the Lord for his love that sought you, that demonstrated it by sending his son to die in your place. Praise him for his grace that would set his love on us through no merit of our own. That would, that would give us the new birth. Praise him now for his faithful provision, that he's faithful to all his promises. Praise him for his daily mercies. What a blessed truth this is, to know that the sovereign Lord and the final judge loves me, loves you, if you're one of his children. 
and that he is your faithful shepherd. To know that the eternal, almighty creator is my God. And I, as I read that and studied that this week, I thought about who would be hearing this message. Can you say that the Lord is your God? Maybe you would agree, yes, he's a great God. Can you say he is my God? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? Do you know that you're in a relationship with him? Because Psalm 95 ends with a warning. And let me just point you to that quickly. Today, verse 7, the end of it, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways, therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. The psalmist here references two occasions when the Israelites, whom God rescued out of slavery in Egypt, did not trust God as he led them through the wilderness. In both of these occasions they disobeyed God, they grumbled against him, they put him to the test, and ultimately they were not allowed to enter the promised land. Rather they died in the wilderness under the judgment of God. So here in Psalm 95, if we put ourselves in that original setting, the psalmist is warning that current generation of, of Jews, of Israelites, I should say, that to not have that same spirit of testing, to not have that same spirit of rebellion that marked the wilderness generation. But now then, as the people, as, as Christians under the new covenant, how should we look at that text? Or... Better yet, as I, I should say, as a um, member of a, of a congregation, as a attender to a church service, how should you look at that text? Maybe that would be a better way of saying it. Well, Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us, and I'll, I'll leave that to you for your homework, but in Hebrews 3 and 4, God's word quotes these very verses of warning from Psalm 95 And applies them to the matter of eternal salvation. In other words, it it takes that and applies it to people who come and worship God. But who are not, or who are around the worship of God, but who are not really saved. He applies it to eternal salvation, to not entering, not a promised land of Canaan, but the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. The eternal rest. And so the warning is for people in a congregation just like ours, just like any other congregation that would gather. People who attend worship services, that's who this warning is for. People who hear the gospel gospel proclaimed and appear to have responded because after all, they're at a worship service. I guess they have responded, right? But no, people who are at a worship service but have never actually surrendered to Christ. Hebrews 3.12 calls it an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Just as we saw several times in the Olivet Discourse, there are those who appear to be part of the congregation. There are those who are around worship who have not truly bowed the knee to Christ. Who, have not, who are not truly committed as followers to Christ. 
And so that's who this warning's for. Saying, don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. You see the evidence of God all around you. You see people's whose lives, maybe some of you are married to them. You see someone whose life has been changed by the Spirit of God. You see God's work in their life, that he's made them a new creation. But what about you? Do you believe? Do you believe? Have you yourself committed to Christ? Jesus, the shepherd king, continues to call sinners to turn from their sin and by faith embrace him as Savior and Lord. So, like the psalm says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear God's voice, if you hear God's spirit saying, come to Jesus, follow Jesus, he's a good shepherd, he's the loving king, he's the Savior, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of gospel invitation. Now is the time to turn from sin, Scripture says, because we don't know what tomorrow may bring. We don't know if we'll hear it again. We don't know if our heart will get even harder. So do not delay. Others who have delayed have perished in their sins. So may each one of us be a true worshiper of Christ by faith embracing him as Lord and Savior. And so in conclusion then, Abounding Grace Church, blood-bought children of God, sheep uh, in God's sheepfold, let us praise the Lord. Let us worship the Lord. And I just close with the beginning of this psalm. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For he is the almighty creator and ruler of all. He is our faithful and loving savior. So let us praise the Lord because he is a great God. And let us thank the Lord because he is our God. So I would invite the the band up, please. And um, why don't we just close in prayer as they come up. Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for your power and for your grace. And Lord, please, as fill our hearts with your spirit now. Fill us with your spirit. Um, Open our eyes, give us, engage our minds and our energy that we would sing your praise today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.